Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to another episode of From the Ashes. I'm Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Mark Vonnegut to talk about mental health uh, and pediatric mental health in particular. Dr. Vonnegut, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So you've trained at Harvard Medical School. You've written multiple books on mental illness from different angles. And the first one was a memoir of your own experience. So on this show, we like to talk about the personal story first. So can you tell us a little bit about your From the Ashes story? What was that okay. like for you? It was uh, in the 60s. Uh, and we all thought the world was, uh, was, you know, our parents and teachers literally didn't know what to tell to tell us because it seemed with the war in Vietnam and uh, all the culture wars um, that, you know, things were pretty catastrophic. And um, so I became a good hippie. I set up a commune in British Columbia. Um, and that now seems crazy to me, but at the time it was a good, it was one of the better career choices available. Um, so when the world didn't end, um, then what we were, were, were people in our mid twenties without jobs, um, in there. And part of, 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 of the story was, um, I had a psychotic break, um, it, which was, um, I mean, it was, I ended up in a hospital at that time. Um, my friends and I believed that mental illness was really a reasonable reaction to an unreasonable society. And there were lots of books telling us this, but for my friends to see me um, stop eating, stop sleeping, lose 25 pounds, uh, hearing voices, acting in an un uncontrolled way. And I think the final straw was when I took a huge rock and put it through an eight by 12 picture window because there wasn't oh. enough oxygen in the air. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so they, um, they called my father and they, they took me to a hospital. Um, it was very different than hospitals now in that doctors really were in charge of when patients, uh, you know, were discharged when they were well enough. And also it was very different because mental health care costs an awful lot less. At the time I was in the hospital for four months and that was about right for me to actually learn that I had an illness and how to, how to deal with it. I think today people are in uh, a week or two weeks and they're discharged on a ton of medication uh, because um, that works out best uh, for the insurers. But I don't think people today are really taught about how to deal with uh, bipolar disease or anything else that they happen to have. Um, so 
And at the time, that that hospitalization cost $11,000, which I thought was the end of the world. I don't think you can get 12 hours in McLean Hospital for 11000 Yeah, that's a steal. <laughs> that's a deal of a lifetime. Right, but, but that's pretty, um, you know, illustrative of what's happened to medical care in general. Um, you know, a hospital bed, when I was an intern, uh, cost about $100. Uh, now that same bed costs $4,000 a day. So uh, I think the money uh, involved has really, really changed medical care and especially uh, psychiatric um, behavioral health care um, because it's a labor-intensive job. And um, and and insurers are uh, uh, are not eager to pay for behavioral health, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that I know quite a bit working in my industry too. We'll definitely touch on that. Mm-hmm. But before we go, that I want to bring you back to the psychotic break incident and more mm-hmm. about your story. You know, there's something that I wrote down as you were talking, which is this idea that mental illness is a reasonable reaction to an unreasonable society. Yeah. Um, I went to a, a alternative grad school called Naropa University, which was a Buddhist uh, grad school over mm-hmm. here in, uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And I think that sentiment is there. I mean, there's a lot of hippies that still preach that. And I can say yeah. for me, I believe that too, mm-hmm. until I, I saw true mental illness, right. right? It was something that from the outside looking in, I was like, yeah, like the system is corrupt. Everything is broken. Like everyone right. should be crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Until seeing it being like, whoa, there's really a lot of suffering here. You know, it's something that shouldn't be glorified in that particular way. I'm, I'm curious how your views changed on mental illness and as the culture developed and as, as you went through it yourself, what, what happened there? Part of what I learned in the hospital and subsequently is that mental illness is really nobody's fault. And yeah. it's, uh, uh, it's a biochemical, um, you know, mess up um almost like any other disease and this no shame no blame the other thing that I've, i i saw fairly quickly in my own case that if my mental health was dependent on the mental health of my uh culture and community i was cooked <laughs> because we have to reasonably expect to live in the world as it is um and you know it's 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 our society is not particularly well. I don't think it's necessarily sicker than it used to be, but thank God um, the mental health of people with mental illness does not depend on the wellness of, of, of their society. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, so what inspired you to go back to medical school? How did you make that shift? Well, as a hippie and, um, and, realizing among that the world wasn't going to end and also realizing that our agenda to wipe out racism, war, poverty (laughs) was was a little unrealistic. And if you were going to be of service and do any good in the world, it was going to be in smaller pieces. Um, And so I, um, and I had had the the hospitalization um, and I said to myself, uh, you know, what would I have done if it hadn't been for the 60s and the war and all that? And I said, well, I was good at math. I was good at chess. Um, I love science. Uh, I should have been a doctor. But at the age of 25, I no longer think 25 is too old for anything. I was like uh, 
four or five years older than most medical school applicants, but I went back to school. I did well, and I got very lucky um, that, you know, Harvard took me in. And uh, I think they did it for variety. <laughs> they wanted <laughs> old, old, older students uh, with different backgrounds. And I, I had written a couple of articles. Um, so they were looking for variety. I, was for, I am and was variety. Mm-hmm. And did you study pediatrics then? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, you do, The first two years of medical school are the science. And then you uh, go into the hospitals and the clinics and you act as a surgeon or a psychiatrist. You get to deliver a baby or two. So, and you get to find out what you like. And what I like better than anything else was working with kids. I like their resilience, their sense of humor. Um, the, the fact, uh, I know probably as a psychotherapist, you know, you can sit there with an adult for months before they'll tell you anything. Uh, yeah. You can play with a kid and find out what's going on in about an hour and a half. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Early in my career, I worked in a Head Start uh, preschool and did play therapy. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's all there. It's all yeah. there. Yeah. It's on and, the surface. Yeah. And um, most of the time, uh, I mean, kids get better and they're grateful. And, um, you know, I love it. You know, a kid will come in with a, with a sprained ankle. I can guarantee he'll be better by the end of the week. Whereas if, uh, if I go in and I sprain my ankle, I'm going to be doing physical therapy for the next six months. And if I'm lucky, I'll anyway, there are a lot of good reasons. And I like pediatricians more than I liked other doctors. They were, I found them easier to work with. I have, (laughs) I, I, say now that most pediatricians they work longer and they look younger than they actually are because they are you know side effects of being around kids all the time is it's good for your health yeah i'd imagine you have to you bring play into your job right because you have to talk with them on that level because that's how they that's how they're experiencing the world right but that you can start anywhere um like i can go into a room and say Nice sneakers. I mean, because <laughs> that's starting a conversation. No, look, I say, not so bad yourself, doc. And I said, yeah, well, I, you know, I have a 19 year old at home and he, he told me to get these vans. And uh, so, but you learn so much from a, con- as you know, for a, a conversation that starts anywhere. And I, I think um, teenagers, kids, you know, it's all challenging and it's always worth doing. Yeah, that's that's really great. I, I'm curious, what lessons you learned from working with kids for that long or being around them for that long? How have they impacted you? They have taught me to um, not expect, not be able to guess what's going to be behind the door. I have to go through that door, whether it's going to be autism or drug addiction or a well kid who wants a physical so he can play football. I have to be, I, and it's my honor to be able to go through a door and say, how can I help you and mean it? And, you know, sometimes somebody, um, you know, needs a new note. I said, my favorite thing is to sign working papers for kids. Yeah, I'll go get a job. (laughs) But uh, or uh, notes for emotional support animals. So somebody can, you know, an autistic kid can take their 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 dog across. So I don't it's the, the variety of what I see 
um, and how I can try to mobilize resources or, or tell them, no, they don't really have a brain tumor or whatever. Um, there's always, there's always something useful to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's really fantastic because you're, you're working with them, like you said, when they're very pliable, when they're resilient, mm-hmm. when they're excited, right. They're not like burnt out on life or entrenched right. in their patterns, right. There's a lot more flexibility. It sounds mm-hmm. like in the way, in the way that works. Um, there is an epidemic, there's no doubt, um, and the pandemic has made it worse, that uh, anxiety and depression are through the roof. And these are things I didn't think as a pediatrician I would be diagnosing and treating. If somebody came in and had been cutting themselves, I'd call a psychiatrist, they'd see the psychiatrist within a few days. Now it's, you know, you're on a waiting list for six months. Um, yeah, tell me more about that. So in my practice, I work with a few Gen Z individuals. You know, it sounds like you work a little bit younger sometimes, right? So I guess that generation alpha, I'm not sure what they're calling them right now. Um, But I do see mental health does seem to be a much larger concern with them. What what are you seeing on on your end? I'm seeing the, the same thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm prescribing, you know, medications for anxiety and depression uh, with kids that I I just didn't expect this was going to be my role. I've since, uh, you know, I've taken courses. uh, I've hired a psychopharmacology nurse, um, but I did not expect to be the the main caretaker of kids with depression and anxiety. Um, And I think it's kids are involved in a race to nowhere where um, they are told that if they get good grades and work hard, everything is going to be fine. And kids are smarter than that. (laughs) And I remember some some disaster had happened somewhere and I was driving my son to school. I have a 19, I, he's now 19, but he's been my wonderful refresher course. But I said, I said, this is so, this is really awful. This isn't how I grew up. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, that this, and, and, and my son absolutely deadpan says, welcome to my world, dad. And, wow. and you know, yeah. in the world of somebody who is, um, in, in high school or whatever, the kind of optimism, sometimes not really justified optimism that I had growing up, that everything was going to be fine. Uh, if I wanted a good job, I could get a good job. If I, um, that kind of certainty, I mean, kids are now looking around and saying, you know, how am I going to make money? How am I going to be able to afford a house? And, and uh, so the world does not look to them like they're going somewhere. But at the same time, they're from the age of 12 on or so are, are, are told they have to get straight A's. Um, there are kids at 14 years old who are uh, signing with colleges to be essentially uh, um, professional hockey players. And um, it's just so much pressure. I have kids who get into college, four-year scholarship, everything paid for, and they don't like the sport they're playing anymore. They have our swimmers who say they don't want to be outboard motors. They're, you know, tight ends, uh, blocking ends who want to be thrown the ball once or twice. Um, <laughs> or they go and they, they, they were the best athlete in their school and they sit on the bench for four years. So 
I think there's a lot of pressure and a lot of disappointment and kids, kids are much smarter than adults about how tough their lives are and are going to be. I think that's very, very true. I, I, we'll probably talk about this in our second segment too. I feel like some part of the millennial generation, right? And we had this cynicism too, very similar thing. But I think at least when I talk, think about my peers, we were distracted, right? There's the advent of cartoons, advent of video games. Like there's a lot of millennials that are still stuck in this nostalgia thing. But when I look at my Generation Z clients, some of their parents are millennials. So they're getting like second uh, cynicism where they can't really be distracted in the yeah. same way because their parents are also cynical. Yeah. Whereas I think the older generation had more of that optimism mm -hmm. and had more of that at least or a sense of purpose and place in the world. No. Um, and in their society where my generation, we, we don't. And then we're raising kids that double don't, you know, right. I'm, I'm glad my parents aren't around to see this. <laughs> they were idealistic, optimistic, even though my father was called a black humorist, he was really at the heart of it, um, an optimist and had a lot of the American dream. And, and, and um, so I said, I, I wish it lived a little longer, but not much beyond Obama. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, not much to, to see the cynicism. I, this is a really fascinating topic. We're going to have to move into our first commercial break here. But when we come back, I want to hear yeah, more about your takes on this, about your experience in pediatrics, and to learn more about your book, which is called The Heart of Caring, um, that people can pick up if they're interested in, in reading. So if you're tuning in, um, hang out there for our commercial break, and we'll see you on the other side. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, .teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. 
This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. So, Dr. Vonnegut, you're a success story, right? I mean, you, you went from... You know, hippie commune, psychotic break, you know, being in mental hospital to going to Harvard Medical School, creating a successful career, publishing books. And we were talking during the break about how those stories are not often highlighted and sometimes even buried, where there's that stigma where people think that a mentally ill person is is homeless or a murderer or a criminal or something, right? It, it, it's this whole other side or should be locked up forever, right? There's all these things in movies and TV and sometimes from the, you know, media that paint this picture. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk more about your view on the stigma and what it was like for you to be, to recover? I mean, to truly heal. For me, I mean, yeah. I mean, I like the title of your show, From the Ashes. I mean, my, my ashes were, you know, being in a hospital, um, had shock treatment, um, which by the way, you know, it's not anybody's first choice, but all of these, you know, it does, it can, it can help people. Um, so I sort of worked myself up and uh, diagnostically I was, I think because I was so sick, I was, I was diagnosed as being a schizophrenic. As I improved, I became a schizophrenic who might do well on lithium. <laughs> you know, when, when I, I at one point was called severe post-adolescent adjustment disorder, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So it, um, and then, you know, manic depressives have become bipolar. I, I mean, technically from my story, I'm definitely bipolar. Um, and I have, uh, and I think it's a blessing that when I'm well, I'm well. And when I'm sick, I'm not well. So I can't sort of skate around it. And I, and I do think part of, uh, of my recovery, it seemed to me was, was to uh, tell the truth about what I had been through. Because to me, um, not looking at it as just a medical illness like other, other medical illnesses was part of what kept people sick. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that, that's true. I, I wonder about bipolar. I'm curious about your, your opinions on that, especially when it comes to medication, right? My right. assumption, and correct me on this, is that the medications are pretty effective Mm -hmm. Yet the clients and the patients are often non-compliant because when they start to feel better, either they go off of it or they enjoy the mania component mm -hmm. of it. So they don't want to take because it, it feels like it kind of dumbs them down. Mm -hmm. Has that been your experience with trying to treat bipolar? 
Uh, yeah. And, you know, I have this thing called a family where, <laughs> <laughs> where being stable is pretty important for that. I've where, heard, <laughs> you know, and these are things that like people don't talk about until I went through my own thing. I found out I was like the fourth generation um, of people who have been hospitalized or, you know, almost or should have been hospitalized. It's a very common thing in the family, but it was a common thing. Nobody wanted to talk about. Um it, it uh, the medications, um, as I said, it's it, they do have side effects and they can be unpleasant, but not as unpleasant as being psychotic. Um, and it, it is a struggle for somebody with bipolar disease to learn about the illness, uh, to learn uh, that the medications really help, to 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 learn that the relapses are really they're more and more painful. Um, um, you know, the, the, the first psychotic break, I was kind of excited. I was going to talk to God, learn the secrets of the, of, of the universe. Yeah. And, and now if I'm even, if I, you know, get really tired or, or I, I just say, no, 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 no. You know, uh, I never, ever, ever want to be sick like that again. Um, so it goes, but people do have this feeling of excitement and they have these romantic notions like about Van Gogh um, that if they can be a little bit crazy, uh, they're going to, they're going to write great novels and paint great paintings. So people are throwing their medicine away and uh, they don't write great novels and they don't paint great paintings. And I think I've come to believe that the relationship with art and mental illness is that painting and writing are things that help you not be unwell and that uh, creativity is part of recovery for certainly for myself and for most recovered people I know. Yeah, I have a very similar experience. So I don't have any mental health diagnoses, but I am a recovering drug addict and I was, I've been sober for about 10 years now. And a big part of my drug use was psychedelics and hallucinogens, mm -hmm. which, you know, touches into that psychotic realm. Yeah. And I remember feeling like I was a genius, right? I had that grandiosity <laughs> that I was, like you said, <laughs> beholding the multiverse, right? Seeing the secrets right. of the universe, you know, right. really getting to the bottom of it, right? Like all these things. Um, and I listened to and heard a lot of like the 60s literature and that really spoke to me during that time in my life as well. And what I realized is what it, it did is one made me a lot harder to relate to because I was thinking and talking about things that other people just were not living in that same reality. Mm -hmm. um, and two made the rest of my life very gray because I was comparing everything to this ecstatic state where it didn't create an addiction per se to that particular substance, but it did create this longing and this kind of lack of fulfillment. And it, it, yeah. it wore out its welcome. You know? Yes. And I think that's what happens even with just simple uh, anxiety for kids is that Jack Daniels turns out to be a very good mood stabilizer until it isn't. Yeah. So, so these kids that are feeling completely miserable, they, they take a drink or are. Or, or narcotics and um, or in almost anything. And yeah, they feel better. And, and so, but the downside, just like uh, with psychosis, bipolar disease, whatever, um, you know, the initial come on or whatever, it, you know, you get the downside is, is 10 times darker and, and worse than the, 
the feeling of getting in touch with the universe or whatever. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you is really want to underscore it is this idea that the other part of the statement, which I think is not talked about, but I'm liking that you're talking about is the glorification of mental illness. Like yeah. you said, that it makes you a great writer or a great painter or a visionary or a prophet or whatever you know language you want to use for it. Because I think with people specifically with bipolar, where there is that grandiosity component, that's incredibly attractive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't want to feel special and feel like they have secret mm -hmm. knowledge and that they are creating the next great work? I mean, that's a very attractive story that right. creates a lot of pain. Yeah. And in the morning, you, you, you look at the painting you made that was brilliant the night before. You look yeah. at these notes where what, you know, what was really going to happen at the end of the world. And it's, it's gibberish, you know, uh, but there is a serious thing. Like um, I can use my famous father who was very, very sick from what he went through in world war two, but he used writing and art to uh, be less lonely, to make other people less lonely. So I think a lot of great art uh, comes from people struggling against the illness, but it doesn't come from going along with the illness. Um, and so I think, you know, severe mental illness, it, it, it's damaging. It's damaging. Yeah, I don't know enough about your father's personal life. I've read a, a fair number of his books when I was yeah. in college. Did he struggle with bipolar too? Was this passed down no. genetically through that line? Or <laughs> like like my sisters have said, yeah. said <laughs> and I say, you know, he's he's not bipolar. I mean, he's not quite right, but we don't know what word <laughs> put on it. <laughs> the actual bipolar gene came down on my from my mother's side. I think my father was uh, maybe depressive, but at the age of 22, having a beautiful city bombed into ashes and then been recaptured and forced to go in and take hundreds and hundreds of corpses uh, out of uh, bombing shelters, um, you know, he had big time PTSD and issues you know, with alcohol or whatever, but he yeah. focused himself into, um, you know, I always think it's creativity and it's being of service in a, in a huge way. My father, when he was writing, was being of service and that, you know, whether it's addiction, alcohol, you know, I think PTSD, telling your story and uh, being of service is, 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 is huge. I think that's huge. I, I agree completely. I mean, it's a big, I'm not currently in, in AA, right? But I did about three years of AA when I was in Pittsburgh, when I was in college and getting uh, sober for in early sobriety. And that's the 12th step, right? Is go out there, be of service, yeah. make your story matter. Yeah. You know, it's really how I framed it. Mm -hmm. And that has been healing. Part of my job is, is doing that um, yeah. and finding ways to express it. Yeah. And I, I do, I talk about uh, mental illness uh, to medical schools uh, I wrote an article for uh, JAMA, Journal of American Medicine, about uh, recovery and service. Just of, and 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 that I think is part of why um, I've been lucky enough to have, you know, a profession, three handsome sons. I, you know, I have a great life. I'm about to go get a new puppy. Oh, <laughs> that's exciting! Yeah, it is. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> but so mental illness has not dominated my life, but I think a lot of, of what's been helpful is this notion of, uh, of recovery and service. 
Yeah, so, so let me ask you this. What message do you wish was out there about mental illness? What do you think would be a corrective message against the stigma? That people get better. I mean, I mean, it's that simple. I think, you know, the thing I can do um, to, to help, uh, you know, deal with the stigma is go to work every day. I'm tired now. I'm, you know, I'm almost 75. So I, I want to go just a, a little bit less, but, but it's really uh, showing up for life and, uh, and, you know, being of service. I mean, that's part of, I've been in this community for 40 years and I've been a soccer coach and, you know, so, you know, I can walk down the street and see little babies and say, Hey, Dr. Mark. And I look at him. I say, you got big. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so there's, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of beauty in that. And I think if you can get doing almost any kind of positive service, I think, you know, I had a ball coaching soccer, I, maybe it's not for everybody, but uh, whether it's, um, you know, just doing positive stuff. And I really do think that um, there is, in medicine and life in general, uh, connection with other people is um, is healing. It's something we need, and I think it's something the pandemic has taken away from us. But I also think that technology was putting huge dents in that already. I think that's very true. You know, there's something I forget who said it. Some brighter than I did that said, you know, the antidote to depression is connection. Yeah, absolutely. And that was that's been true in my life. That entered my addiction was connection. I entered to a yeah. lot of things is connection and community, and that right. sense of truly sense of belonging, you know, right. being a part of something bigger, knowing who I can depend on, knowing who's in my inner circle in my corner right. has been so critical to even just feel I have an inner circle, right? To feel like it's I do have a corner that people want to be in. Right. Uh, that was something that wasn't present in a lot of my early life, and now that I have it, I wouldn't let go of it for for the world. Right. One of the ways I look at medications is medications make it possible. And, you know, to talk to other people and talking to other people make, gives you a reason to take medication. So you get, you know, and cleaning up your diet and exercise and uh, all of these things work together. But basically, I think without connection, there's no healing. And without healing, there's no connection. That's one of the ways, you know, I look at it with kids. Um, so even just making connection, uh, even if you don't have a magic pill, just that connection, um, uh, is very healing. We're social animals. Yeah. We truly need each other. Yeah. You know, and I think there's something about, I mean, now maybe we're getting on the hippie train a little bit of the, of the <laughs> sick culture, but I, I'll go there. <laughs> no, we'll go there. Yeah. But I, I think there is something around this, you know, fierce individuality that I think the American culture really typifies. And, mm -hmm. you know, I work almost exclusively with men and a big part of toxic masculinity is the other, you don't need anybody, right? If you mm -hmm. can't do it yourself, you, you know, you're weak, something mm -hmm. like that, right? There's a lot of these messages put up by your, up by your bootstraps mm -hmm. that are, I think meant to be empowering, but end up being very lonely for people, yeah. quite frankly. Very, very lonely, right. Because yeah. the, the ultimate macho man is the Lone Ranger. <laughs> you know? Right, You're just him and his horse, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I like the, the joke about Lone Ranger is surrounded by, by hostile Indians. And he says, well, Tonto, I guess we've had it. And Tonto says, who's we, white man? <laughs> <laughs> 
I like that. Well, I, yeah, I think that loneliness is 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 the core of a lot, and I think um, and, and connection is it's 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 not just a hippie notion connection is necessary to healing and healing is necessary to make to make it possible to connect yeah and and i think with technology i'm curious your views on it being of the older generation too and seeing more of the growth than i have mm-hmm. this idea of simulating connection like in some ways it makes connection in ways that you've never had you can call someone in you know other side of the world right. but it's also it's like it's so close to being real but it's not quite real you know and and i think the brain knows i think on some level yeah. the brain knows that this isn't right. real right friend is not a verb <laughs> right right that's and i do think uh you know there is something that we've retreated um so we used to write letters and that was very personal and then uh, then we'd make real phone calls, voice to voice. And then we got to texting and emails and texting when you were going to send an email or have a phone call. Um, and, you know, you said they, people are having relationships and then breaking up uh, by text, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's very damaging. And there are girls who go to sleep sorry to be sexist, with the phone on their pillow about who likes who and um, they don't sleep and um, they get anxious and depressed about what their friends are telling them. Yeah, and there's some great books as a researcher, you probably know him, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who talks about children and, and mental health and the advent of the phone and body image dysmorphia and you know, yeah. right. lack of self-worth and all this stuff, right? It's this right. constant comparison and- yeah. You know, it's like, as again, as a millennial, I remember a time without that. But I do worry about, you know, Gen Z is who I have more access to in my practice. Mm-hmm. But like, they, they were born in it. And again, let me talk about before, yeah. like many of their parents, my generation are still stuck in it, right? So like, their parents are stuck in it, and then they're double stuck in it. It's it's, uh, it's something to really, to really think about. So we're gonna move into our final segment here. I'm gonna move to a commercial break. In this final segment, we'll talk directly to the listeners. So if you're listening and you want to hear some um, Dr. Mark Vonnegut suggestions, advice, things if you're relating to this conversation, uh, stay tuned and we'll catch you on the other side. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y 
www.teachable.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. So we were talking during the break about how some of these things that you're seeing in children are new. You mentioned cutting, um, eating disorders, uh, an increase in autism. Can you say more about that? Because the narrative that that I've been told is that, you know, the medical system is just better at diagnosing or people are talking about it more. But I'm curious to hear your side of it and, and what you've noticed out it there in your practice. I think probably um, there was always some of the, of the, eating disorders and self-harm and, but, and autism, but um, it's, it's very real that there's a lot more um, of autism, whether it's something in the environment or, um, you know, I see what helps autistic kids and some of them can do very, very well. Um, and I, I love my, my autistic patients who can, you know, there are some who have no language and that's much more tragic, but, um, anyway, uh, we used to just call them atypical children, but, um, autistic, uh, you know, I think part of it is, uh, there, there must be a chemical or something in the environment, but there also is these kids, uh, aren't their parents aren't able to be there for them as much as, you know, ABA is applied behavioral analysis where a a therapist really confronts the child and doesn't let them go into their own little world. So I think there are different kinds of autism, Um, uh, you know, cutting and stuff is a little more, um, I'm sure that when I was growing up, kids weren't making these careful little cuts on their arms. Um, and that is partly, you know, social because you go online, uh, people are making cuts, people are telling you how to be anorectic, people are, um, 
and you know, as social animals, uh, we want to do what our friends and family and other people are doing. Um, and a lot of what uh, of the behavioral stuff, including substance abuse, um, you know, you know, I grew up in, in the 50s on Cape Cod and I knew there was a town drunk and I knew there was, you know, that but but these things were not in your face all the time. And I think with uh, social media, kids can uh, connect and sort of reflect their own you know, pathology, be it self-harm or, or drugs or eating disorders, um, you know, you can give a 15 second clip on TikTok and kids just, they see what they want to see. Uh, but a lot of it is very, very, very harmful. And I do think there are new influences like the social media, and there are essentially new diseases like the epidemics of cutting um, and, it's so that's yeah life is new there are, are new things we have to deal with some of which are very very harmful to our mental health yeah so when a child walks into your office and has some of these behaviors or when a parent does what do you tell them where do you start i think with kids um the first thing to let them know is that they are not the only ones that they're, you know, if uh, an anxious 13 year old who is afraid to go out of the house or go to school is convinced that they are the only 13 year old who has ever felt that way. So job one, tell them that they're not the only one. Job two is to tell them there are a lot of things that they can do to get better. And if they, you know, and sometimes I, I ask, and it's a question from other, you know, addictive uh, medicine is, what are you willing to do? Do you want your life to get better? What are you willing to do to get it that way? And then I can lay out, uh, it's not the whole, nothing is the whole answer, but if you, you know, clean up your diet, walk two miles a day, uh, get off your screens, um, you know, talk to your parents. If you can't talk to your parents, I have therapists here. You can talk to your therapist. Um, and, and, and just sort of, you are when it, one of many anxious uh, children and, uh, and you can and will probably get better. And, and also you warn them, uh, I warn them about sort of false cures like alcohol and narcotics. Yeah, so it sounds like it goes back to that community piece we were talking about before is knowing that they belong, that there's nothing weird or, or strange about them and that there are resources available. And some of the stuff is simple. It can be difficult, but it's simple. There's nothing crazy that really needs to happen. And there are improvements. I would, um, you know, I, I would say like 40 years ago, kids, the, the sort of the shame and the stigma of being gay. Um, and, and that's really, really gone. And mm -hmm. when it, when a kid uh, comes in and says, Dr. Vonnegut, I have, I have some, I have, I have something uh, I wanted to tell you. And, 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 and they say, I'm gay. And part of me wants to say, I knew that one. I knew that when you were about 12, but also, but also, you know, the, 
Barnaby says, "Is that all?" Right. <laughs> I yeah. said, you know, say, look, look at this. You you can get better clothes, more money, better parties. I mean, you know, there's a lot of advantages. But I, it's it's just that um, the seriousness of of that as a problem uh, is is completely changed. And I think we can change um, the loneliness of um, anxiety and depression, and um, you know. Yeah, so I don't have to overcome this giant resistance to jump over this wall to, Nick. you know, come out, right? Or come out as having a mental Nick. illness or come out as being, you know, having an eating disorder. And right. it can be like, yeah, yeah, not a problem. If you want to change it, here's how to here's how to change it, you know? And that's why I wrote the second book about I'm just like someone without mental illness, only more so. Mm-hmm. And just sort of saying that, yeah, you're not alone. And, and, and there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of ways to connect with other people, be it a therapist or, uh, or your friends or whatever. I think all connection is good. Yeah, I think that's, that's just the theme we keep hitting on. Yeah. Uh, so how would you encourage a parent? What, what would a parent do if they're noticing some of these behaviors in their children? Um, to be able to be... Um, it, Honest. I mean, I've tried a lot of different things. One thing I've had some luck, luck with is uh, asking parents to talk to their own parents about what they were like as kids, to try to bring the parents sort of back into uh, being able to identify um, and be a, and be more of a, of a peer. Not not that you're not still a parent, but to have some identification uh, if you learn what you were like as a child um and and doing all the same the same things that i talked about before is you know you're not alone you're not the only person that ever felt this way uh there's a lot of good things and you can go through the diet the exercise uh you know medication therapy you know you, you say you know i i got i got you know pick one or two i've got five good things you could do and you can come back in two weeks and tell me what worked yeah, I think the thing that I would add when I work with parents too is helping them without judgment, of course, understanding like the systemic lens, mm-hmm. right? That hopefully not identifying their kid as the problem child or as the identified patient or as mm-hmm. the one that's broken, but mm-hmm. looking at, hey, what's going on in the whole household? And yeah, as a parent, you have a role in that. It's right. not your fault, but you have a role in that, right? These There is genetic components, but these things don't come out of nowhere. Yeah, it's fun to just say you could try therapy yourself and just see what kind of... Oh, they <laughs> hate it. They hate that. <laughs> but no, some of them Some of them will say, I could probably use it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Most of the time, they're horrified. <laughs> Part of my plan when I'm talking, negotiating with kids, especially if it's substances and behavior uh, involved, I'll you know, I'll make it sort of a deal. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to stop swearing at your mother. And oh yeah, uh, I'm going to tell your mother that she's got to stop bugging you and kids finally. And so part of the treatment plan is the parents have to stop bugging the kid. He's 14, you know, game, you know, you've done what you can uh, in terms of character. So, so I do, I say, and then when the parents come back in, uh, and I say, well, part of the plan here is you've got to stop coaching your kid. I don't, I don't usually tell them to stop bugging. 
<laughs> you got to stop being so annoying to your kid. <laughs> right. And, and so the kids will buy in to the rest of what I wanted them to do. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're still in that, in that transitionary stage where they need another adult to say it to their parents. Right. right. And they right. might say it in their own way, but it's not going to be effective. And the, and the parent probably needs another adult to say it to them. Right. Right. And uh, uh, that's the model that I think really works. It's really going to that, you know, systemic level and, and trying to see all those things that are happening and, and to try to make changes on the family unit level yeah. to help yeah. support the child. Pick out, pick out 10 things you do for your child and do one less. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just give a little bit of space. Let them, let them um, figure it out on their own. Um, so yeah, as, as we're wrapping up here, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Like, What's in it? What do you go over there? It's, it's you know, it's, it's the story of, uh, of, of medical care as much as anything else. And I, medical care is mostly taking care of patients. So I tell the story as, uh, you know, with patients. Like my first patient as an intern, poor girl from Cape Verde, arrived with a note on her chest that says, I have cancer, take me to Mass General. Kid got world-class care. Uh, and we often gave away care when it was the appropriate thing to do because the mission of medical care is that people who need care get it. And how that has changed to, to I'm writing notes to insurance companies that Maggie still has no left leg. Uh, and I think a lot of the time, once the insurers are are sort of in control, um, they don't they don't want to pay for for some, and you know they're businessmen. I I understand that they don't want to spend money, uh, but I also understand um, that my patients, you know, the ones who need wheelchairs need wheelchairs. They're not faking it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think so. The book tries, you know, along with my my cute kids who are, you know, I tell them they have to pee in a cup and they ask me what's wrong with my bathroom. Mm -hmm. But there is the seriousness of, of, of how care has become less and less available. And you see a doctor you've never seen before and never, and never going to see again. And his motivation to connect with you and help is minimal because right. he's been told he has to see six patients an hour. Right. It's not incentivized. Yeah. That's a, it's a really great topic, especially with, you know, the pandemic and the healthcare crisis that I think has really been illuminated. Yeah. So as we're wrapping up here, Dr. Vonnegut, where can people find you online? Where if they want to learn more about you, learn about your books, where are you out there? As of last week, I actually have a website. <laughs> there you go. Perfect timing. I, I think it's Mark Vonnegut. Doc, um, I'm absolute. I'm actually not sure what it is, but I think you can probably find it. Uh, and uh, also, there is a website for my um, my practice, which is Mark Vonnegut Pediatrics. Um, but you know, the, the the really helpful thing you can do right now is go to Amazon, Barnes Noble, or your local bookstore, and 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 buy my book. You know, and sometimes I tell people buy two or three in case you misplaced the first one stock <laughs> up on them so the book again so I, I i do you know i feel very positive about having written the book because i have felt that my patients and other doctors uh, aren't going to have the kind of opportunities for care and stuff that i've had and um and so a lot of the tragedy in mental health in kids is is the care's not there yeah. six months to see a psychiatrist 
three months to get to find a therapist, you know, to see it, you know, it's, it's, it's just sad and a lost opportunity that the care is not there. Yeah. Again, really important topic. If you're listening, check it out. The book again, is called the heart of caring a life in pediatrics by Dr. Mark Vonnegut. Thanks Dr. Vonnegut for joining the show. It was great to talk to you. Really fun conversation. And for those listening out there, tune in next time. And we'll see another episode of from the ashes coming out in a week. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same. <laughs>